Our reading this morning comes to us from 1 John chapter 4. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, you are the source of all love and of all life. As we gather this morning on the first Sunday of Advent, we pray that you would meet us in the dark places of our hearts with your light, with your life, and your love. We pray that you would give birth to new hope in us, that you would awaken dim hearts, hearts that have grown sleepy and weary, worn out by the hardship and bleak nature of our broken and fallen world. We ask that you would refresh us and remind us of our source of hope, remind us of the source of love, even of you. We look to you today, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are, uh, first Sunday of Advent. Thanks, special thanks to our own Kathy Turley for uh, decorating our space. This lovely Many of us uh, gathered here just last night for the memorial service for Joshua Martinez. Uh, and to also remember all of the ones uh, that we have lost, whether before their birth or just shortly thereafter. And our hope in that darkness of last night was to look forward to here and now, just to look forward to this moment, to look forward to the Advent, because Advent is a season of hope. It's a season of remembering why it is that we hope to season when the flicker of light that is God's love in the world becomes a roaring flame. The truth, of course, is that God has never ceased loving his creation. He's never ceased loving his creatures. God has always loved us and always will love us no matter how far we stray from him. But our hearts have grown so dim that we now often find it difficult to receive much of that love. Our hearts are blocked off, calloused over from the pain and hurts of this world, such that we need more heat, we need more light, we need God to rip open those calluses, to reawaken our hearts, to reopen them into being what he meant for them to be, which are receptacles of his love, that we would be filled with his love, overflowing with his love. We need God among us for this. We need God with us. We need Emmanuel. And that is the hope of Advent, that he has, in fact, come to be with us. 
to reawaken our dim hearts, to remind us of who we are in Him, and to lavish the world with so much love that we would actually drown in it. That all of our self-sufficiency, all of our unlove would suffocate in the ocean that is God. And that we would be made new, remade new in Him, in the pattern of His love. Now I know for many of you, this time of year is quite difficult. Though it's a time of rejoicing, a time of hoping, a time of celebrating, many of you find this time of year the hardest of all seasons and would rather that it just pass. The reason for that, of course, is that holidays are a magnifying glass onto the present state of our families. Whatever the present, current condition of your family life may be, the holidays blow that up to epic size for you to see. Throughout the rest of the year, you might be able to ignore the dysfunction of your family, maybe, if you close your eyes really, really tight. Um, but around the holidays, you don't stand a chance. Whether the dysfunction is current, whether the pain point is present right now, or just in the past, whether it is a mountain or a molehill, the holidays magnify it, they blow it up. You have to look at it, you have to see it. And the truth of the matter is, of course, we all have family baggage. Whether we're paying attention to that or not, we all have family baggage because we were all born into families with hearts dimmer than they were made to be. Hearts dimmer than they ought to be. And so none of us were loved by our families in the way that we need to be loved. All of us suffered some love deficit and so all of our hearts have been dimmed in turn. We were born into broken, dysfunctional families, families that could not love us in the way we needed to be loved, and we now have joined that dysfunction. We're now willing participants in that. One of my uh, spiritual directors, a person that I've been introduced to over the past couple of years, um, at a recent retreat that I was on, she was talking about family story and understanding your family story and the incubator that you birthed out of and were raised up through. And she said that when she asks someone about their family story to qualify it or speak to it, and that person responds, oh, it, it was fine. My, my parents did the best they could. Which, she says, by the way, is the most common answer. She says when someone responds that way, she instantly knows that that person is only now at the very beginning of a long journey into understanding just how broken their family dynamics truly were. That's not something that we automatically know or automatically see because our family dynamics are normal to us. They define normal to us throughout our upbringing. And it's only later as we begin to look back, begin to journey into it, we can begin to understand some of that dysfunction. Now, of course, the purpose of that journey is not to produce bitterness. The purpose of that journey is not to blame shift. The purpose of that journey is not to unload 
all of the responsibility for the choices that we have made in our lives. Of course, we are responsible for, the own cho- for our own choices that we've made in our lives. But you will find it very difficult to understand the choices that you have made in your life. Or even to have some small modicum of self-awareness without any understanding of the broken dynamics of your upbringing, and specifically of your family. Without knowledge of that, without willingness to look into that, which can be scary, no doubt, can be upsetting, no doubt, without going on that journey, you will be routinely confused about why it is that you are the way you are and what it is that you routinely are doing. Now, the holidays, of course, are a great place to begin that journey of looking, to begin that journey of noticing. There's a reason why biologists study the material world under a magnifying glass or a microscope, because when you put something under magnification, you can see it. And the holidays are just such a glass to look into the stories of our upbringing. So you can begin to pay attention even this holiday season. You can begin to look at the family dynamics that incubated you, that brought you up. Perhaps when you're gathered around the table for Christmas dinner, or maybe when you are working out your travel itineraries, or if you dare, when Uncle Jim comes up. You all have Uncle Jim. I have Uncle Jim. Your Uncle Jim might be an aunt. He might be a stepmom. He might even go by another name. He's Uncle Jim all the same. If you pay attention when Uncle Jim arrives, you will begin to notice immediately some of those very broken family dynamics. Now I know some of you, perhaps most of you, perhaps most of us, would rather not look. We'd rather not pay too close attention to what happened in our story because there's just so much pain there. We would rather put our fingers in our ears and close our eyes very tight and just wait for January or our death, whichever comes first, (laughs) rather than having to look into all of the intrigue and dread of our family pain. But I want to press you to reconsider that. If you are someone who would rather not look in, I want to press press you to reconsider for this reason. The pain of your upbringing, the pain of the broken family dynamics that shepherded you and shaped you and formed you, it's not going away. It's not going anywhere. No matter how much you ignore it, no matter how much you repress it, no matter how much you don't look at it, it actually, to a great extent, is driving your story. Perhaps unwittingly, you may not even be aware how much that is the case, but it is driving your story. And God is up to something in the world. He's starting with our pain. Our pain doesn't have to drive our story. And God needs to meet us there and begin to work redemption there. That's really what we're hoping for in Advent. That's what the hope of the world is. Is that God will come in and begin to address all of this pain 
in some meaningful way. Now we would want him to address our pain in a very different way than he winds up doing. We would like very much for God to simply remove our pain, or at least to reduce our pain. But that is not the way that God has chosen to work. We see that so clearly in the stories of faith, in the lives of faith, in those that we look to the past saints. God does not simply remove pain from them or from any people. Instead, God has come to join us in the pain. God has come to take us by the hand and to lead us into facing that pain, to looking at it in a way that doesn't pretend that it is less than it is in a way that actually begins to face it and address it. God joins us in our pain by coming as a baby boy born into a real human family, born into a dysfunctional human family. Actually, you could argue that the whole story of the Old Testament is simply the story of Jesus' dysfunctional family. It's God's willingness to look carefully at the dysfunction that gave birth to Christ and the dysfunctional family that he came into. I want you to pay attention to this. The hope of Advent is not about being extracted out of pain or dysfunction. We can get confused because of all the ribbons and cookies. It might seem as though the goal is to simply cover over things with sugar. But the hope of Advent is salty, not sugary. The hope of Advent is flesh and blood, not fluff and balloons. The hope of Advent is not to be extracted out of the pain and dysfunction of our upbringing. The hope of Advent is to go into it, to face it with the presence of Christ with him. Face it with him even as he faces that pain in his own life. Baby Jesus has baggage. You can tweet that. <laughs> Baby Jesus has baggage. Just like you. And if you want to know how to understand and interpret the ways that your family has failed you, you would do well to pay very close attention to see the way in which Jesus interprets and understands the way his family failed him. Okay, Jesus was born into a Jewish family. He was born into real flesh and blood, to the real dirt of history, actual Jewish people. He was born in the line of the great king, David. And though Jesus was born to peasant parents, he was given a education in the regal tradition of Jewish religious life. Jesus was born a Jew. And so we learned how to connect to God through Jewish practice. Jesus was taught to pray the Psalms. He was taught to study and memorize the Torah, the law. He learned what it was to be Jewish, to connect to God the Father through this great tradition of Judaism. That was who he was. It was central to his earthly identity that he be Jewish. And yet, as he begins to come of age, those very Jewish people 
who are incubating him, who are training him, who are teaching him how to connect with God, they begin to reject him. The scriptures tell us that he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Try to imagine that. Try to imagine, put yourself in the shoes of Jesus, being born Jewish, and then having that very society, that very people, turn on you. In effect, they were saying to Jesus, you're not Jewish enough. That might be hard for some of us to relate to, what that would be like. If you are of broadly European descent, you may have lost any sense of particular ethnic identity several generations ago. We're Dutch and Danish and Irish and Italian and German and French and Scandinavian, etc. And so we don't have a particular ethnic identity, many of us. But there are some here who are not broadly European by descent, who still do closely associate with a particular ethnic identity. And imagine for you what it would be to be told, you're not black enough. You're not a true Latino. These are horrible words to hear. And these are the words that Jesus hears as he begins to come of age. Because Jesus is teaching in such a way that the Jewish community esteems to be tearing down Judaism. He's teaching ways of connecting to God that they consider distortions. They believe that he is ripping to the ground the very essence of what it means to be Jewish. And so they are casting him out. They are declaring him not Jewish enough. That he doesn't belong among this people group that he feels so connected to. And his own family buys into that. Gospels record that his own family, his own mother, his brothers, they buy into this idea that Jesus is going crazy, that he's losing his mind, that he's abandoning Jewish custom and practice, that he's leaving what it means to be Jewish. They threaten, in fact, to disown him and reject him altogether. When Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth as an adult teacher, Everyone could immediately see how gifted he was in wisdom and authority. But they took great offense at him. Matthew records, They took offense at him, but Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. Jesus comes to his hometown, he comes to Nazareth, he begins to teach and minister in the way that he's been doing in the other towns around Judea. And his own hometown, his own people, his own family, the people that have known him, they give him no honor. They take offense at what he is saying. They cast him out. They marginalize him. And Jesus reflects that I'm honored everywhere else I go except among my own. I'm honored by others. Others esteem what it is that I have to say, these gifts of healing I have to offer. But my own people, my own hometown, my own household, my own family, they reject me. They won't have me. There's deep hurt and brokenness in these words 
from Jesus. And ask, how has your family failed you? What are the pain points in your own story? What are those tender spots? Some of you may instantly know the answers to that, or some of the answers to that. You may have an idea of what that was. Others of you, perhaps you haven't considered it. You may not even know it in a way that you could articulate consciously. But I can promise to you, you know it in your body. Because any way that we are left unloved, any way that we are left uncared for, it leaves a mark in us in some deep and profound way, even if a way that we are not able to consciously understand or interpret or share or speak of. Nevertheless, it is driving us in some meaningful way or ways. And you might well be periodically surprised to discover how much you are being controlled by this pain point, these pain points that are outside of your field of vision. You might have moments where you react to life in a way that is disproportional to what life is presenting. Right? You invite a close friend, perhaps, to come attend some event that you are holding that is important to you, and that friend is a no-show, and suddenly there's this rage bubbling up from within you that you don't really have explanation for, that you can't really interpret or understand. Why so much anger? Why so much malice and vengeance bubbling up? It's as though you've been transported back into some past incident in your life, back into some meaningful challenge, hardship in your life that has shaped you and formed you, and that pain has not gone away. And life is now bringing, moment by moment, opportunity for that pain to come out sideways, as it were, to manifest in you in some overreaction. And you may not even be aware of this, just how much you're being driven by the story of your family's own dysfunction. The hurt is too deep, perhaps, to even see. When I was a kid, uh, my parents, some of you know this story, belonged to a large church cult. Probably be the best way to describe it. Uh, and this community was a perfect bubble uh, in that it had several thousand members within this community. Uh, there was a K through 12 school and a preschool. There was a college. There were dress codes that had to be followed whether you were in the school or not. If you were a part of the community, you followed certain dress codes, certain dietary restrictions, certain language restrictions. We were cultural separatists. We were completely isolated from the normal world and living in this bubble, according to a particular rule for life. And then, poof, the bubble burst. The bubble was gone in an instant, it felt like as a kid. 
all of a sudden, everything changed. Now this church cult ceased to exist, and that was very good. That was a very good thing that happened. But for me, as a six or seven year old kid, it was remarkably disruptive and disorienting. Because I had no context or perspective to know the degree to which that church cult was toxic and unhealthy and needed to die. All that I experienced was rapid, even violent change. In an instant, it was really overnight. I remember my parents telling me I could no longer speak to any of the children that I had been friends with. We were not a part of that community in any way. Overnight. There was no opportunity for goodbye. We moved to a new school. And at this new school, there were no dress codes. There were no language codes, per se, anything more than you would have in a typical CBS school. Both you talk to the shoots that probably would disagree. There's a few language codes in their classroom. <laughs> there was new ways of dressing, new ways of speaking, new ways of eating. All the dietary restrictions were thrown out. This very kind of repressed, separatistic way of life ended very abruptly. And all of that change was so overwhelming to me that I ran into the woods. Quite literally, there were large woods at the end of my dead-end street. Miles and miles of forest. And I lived there for years. Starting at the age of around seven. When I would come home from school, I wouldn't go home. I would go to the woods. And I would stay there until it was required that I come home from gym. I would go there any free moment I had. Every weekend, all summer long, I spent alone in these woods. Just to get away from all of this disorienting, confusing, dramatic change in my life. Just to have something that felt calm. Something that felt peaceful. Something that had roots to it. Big trees that weren't going anywhere. And they were always the same, time and time again. And of course, now, here I am, a grown man, almost 40 years old, and I still run the woods. It's like nothing really has changed. Whenever there is some dramatic shift in my world that I don't feel as though I have control over, that I'm not the decisive decision maker of, I run right back into the woods. Of course, now for me, the woods are my study, or my basement, or very long marathon training runs. (laughs) Some lovely woods. (laughs) But that same pain, that same impulse that was directing and guiding my life in my upbringing, the result of the dysfunction of my family story, and how so much dictates and drives the way that I engage with life now. How did your family fill you? What were the family dynamics, the broken family dynamics of your story that still are driving the tale of your life today? That's a question that's worth asking, and we're actually in a season worth asking it in. 
season of opportunity, a season of seeing. There are really only two kinds of people in the world. There's lots of ways to break the world into two groups. I'm going to break the world into two groups. There are those who have begun the journey of forgiving their family and those who have not. And that's a very serious divide. I say those who have begun the journey of forgiving their family because forgiveness is not a light bulb. Forgiveness doesn't happen at the moment. Don't let anyone ever shame you for not having the journey of forgiveness all wrapped up. Don't let anyone ever tell you you should be done forgiving that person or those people or that situation. Now, forgiveness is a long journey. Forgiveness is actually a slow march toward a cross. And so there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who have begun that walk toward a cross and those who have not. Many of us would prefer not. Many of us would turn to anything else other than forgiveness to deal with the pain that we've experienced in our lives. Much of what we count as forgiveness is in fact just clever repression. Clever ways of pretending that what has happened to us in our story wasn't a big enough deal to actually have to deal with, or to actually have to look at, or to actually have to walk through a journey of forgiveness over. We would rather not face that bloody trail. We'd rather just make it go away, stuff it under the rug, as it were. When Jesus was making his way toward Jerusalem for the final time, taking that walk to the cross, very consciously taking that walk to the cross, beginning that journey of forgiveness, that road to forgiveness. As he was preparing to enter the capital of the people who were rejecting him, the capital of his family, his clan, his tribe, he paused on a hilltop overlooking the city, and Luke records for us, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. This is a window into Jesus journeying toward Jesus journeying toward love, toward loving these people, this city that would soon crucify him. This is so important. You see in these words, Jesus does not pretend that his own people haven't failed him. He's not pretending that things are fine. Well, the Jewish community did the best they could. My family did the best they could. No, he's acknowledging real failure, real brokenness here. He's not pretending. He weeps over Jerusalem. He feels all the pain of his family's failures. He lets all of that pain wash over him. He doesn't duck from Face it. 
only you could see Christ. If only you knew the ways of God, the things that bring shalom into the world. But you don't know. You don't know. You people who birthed you people of God, you chosen people of God, you beloved of God, you don't know, you don't see. And so all that there is left to do is to forgive and to love. Jesus is seeing all of that as he journeys toward the cross. You see how astonishing the love of Jesus is, weeping over the very city that resists him, moving toward this people that has rejected him, the city that will soon crucify him. He's filled with sorrow, not bitterness. This is so important. Every one of us, as we experience the brokenness of our family dynamics, the brokenness of the incubator of our lives, what's shaped us and formed us, there's grief-worthy stuff in that story. There's stuff in that story that is hard, stuff in that story that hurts, stuff in that story that wounds us deeply. And God is so kind. He knows that that kind of pain can't simply be shelved. It can't simply be discarded. It must be looked at. It must be dealt with. It must be processed. And so rather than leave us in the place of repression and bitterness, God gives us this extraordinary gift called sorrow. Sorrow is such a sweet gift. Sorrow is the place in which we face our pain and we don't face our pain alone because God has given us this gift of sorrow in the very flesh and blood of the Lord Jesus. That is to say, He has given us a sorrow that is as close to the Father's heart as is possible. He welcomes us into His very heart through that sorrow. That we would be caught up into the very life and person and being of God as we grieve, as we are sorrowful over the ways that we have been moved. As we see it for all it is and stop pretending that it's less than it is. I know many of you have been wronged deeply by your family, by your upbringing. I know many of you have been wronged by the church sometimes by the church that raised you, this church included in that. All of us have in our stories hearts where people who were meant to love and protect us most have failed to do so. And we're wounded creatures on account of that. And that pain must be faced. It must be grieved. But it doesn't have to be a source of it. This is God's great kindness to us, giving us that sorrow that can give birth to forgiveness and love. That's the purpose of God's gift of sorrow to us, that it would lead us back into the place of forgiveness and love. God's love is so different than ours. Great writer Brennan Manning He writes this, God's love is based on nothing. 
And the fact that it is based on nothing makes us secure. Were it based on anything we do, and that anything were to collapse, then God's love would crumble as well. But with the God of Jesus, no such thing can possibly happen. People who realize this can live freely and to the full. As it turns out, we are all members of the family that rejected Jesus. It's not only the Jewish people, not only the Jewish community that he was born into. He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Certainly that speaks of Jewish people, but we are all of like kind with the Lord Jesus. We share a humanity with him. And he came into the family of humanity. He became one of us. He tabernacled among us. The word made flesh. And we rejected him. We turned on him. We were, we are, the dysfunctional family of Jesus. And yet, he goes to the cross for us. He began and completed that journey of sorrowful forgiveness in order that he might be with us and love us again. This is the hope of Advent, that Jesus has walked that road. John writes, written on the wall behind me, God showed his love among us He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Advent is here. The way of love is at hand. The way of Christ is at hand. The way of sorrow is at hand. God has lavished the world in this kind of love. A love that does not depend on the loveliness of the one it loves. A love that does not depend on the loveliness of the family that it now forgives. Jesus does not love us because we have expressed our devotion to him. Because we've proved our commitment to him. He loves us in spite of what we've done to him. In spite of our rejection of him. In spite of our abuse of him. In spite of our crucifixion of him. The free, relentless love of God is ours to receive. And here's what's most astonishing about all of this. It's also ours to give. This love of God, this love of God that requires no other fuel other than the glory of His own being and the tenderness of His own heart. Jesus didn't just come into the world to love us with that kind of love. He came into the world to fill us with that kind of love. To fill us to overflowing with that kind of love. But as we walk this road to the cross with Him, as we are mournful, experience sorrow over the brokenness and pain of our own stories, we would meet the tenderness of God's heart there and be filled to overflowing with the love of Christ for others. This is the good news of Advent. Divine love. Love that weeps over Jerusalem. Love that goes to the cross for those that reject us. It's ours. It's ours in Christ. Hear this. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God lives in us 
and his love is made complete in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for not overlooking all of the parts of our story that we might otherwise overlook. Thank you for leading us by hand into those those places of sorrow and teaching us what it is to forgive and to love again. Lord, I pray for the people in this room, people of our church, that the bitterness that we have in us from the hardships that we endure in our lives would melt in the face of your lavish love on us. Lord, teach us to be receivers of that love. Open up calloused hearts. Awaken dimmed hearts. Make us alive and soft and fleshy and salty again. Make us a people who pour ourselves out in your strength. Amen.